debating the role of metropolitanism in environmental history. And in that regard, I think that um, it has had a, a, a sort of mutually constitutive relationship with environmental history research that's been, it's influenced it and been influenced by it. A conversation with some leading Canadian environmental historians about the Metropolitan Thesis. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 19 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. In 1954, Canadian historian James Maurice Stockford Careless published an influential article in the Canadian Historical Review titled Frontierism, Metropolitanism, and Canadian History, which offered a new approach for understanding the course of Canadian history and the development of the Canadian nation-state. Instead of adopting the U.S. model of a frontier thesis, which saw the expansion and development of the United States connected directly to the extension of a westward settlement frontier, Careless proposed a different model based on a metropolitan thesis, which understood the development of the Canadian nation-state as a function of the interconnection between metropolitan centres and their regional hinterlands. Under this model for understanding Canadian history, the contours of the country's expansion were determined not by a continuous line of frontier settlement, but instead by a radial expansion of urban influence on rural hinterlands. Careless's notion of metropolitanism has since played a significant role in environmental history research, most prominently in the work of William Cronin in Nature's Metropolis and other works in urban environmental history. Borrowing from Careless, this research examines the urban environment in its relationship to rural hinterlands, extending our understanding of the meaning of urban environments beyond the municipal boundaries. The exploitation of natural resources in distant hinterland regions in North America, as far as the northern reaches of Canada, has in some fashion been influenced by urban consumer demand. Cities consume more resources than their physical footprints can supply, and therefore they rely upon drawing from resources from an extended hinterland region. As such, metropolitanism as an approach to understanding the interconnections between cities and hinterlands has been quite influential in environmental history research. To explore the role of metropolitanism in Canadian research, I spoke with some leading scholars in the field of Canadian environmental history. Hi, it's Matthew Evenden here. I'm in the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia. Hi, I am uh, James Merton. I'm in the Department of History at Nipissing University. I'm Lisa Piper. I'm in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta. Well, thanks for joining us uh, today uh, on this, what will hopefully be a really interesting conversation about the uh, role of metropolitanism in Canadian environmental history. I wanted to start off uh, by asking uh, maybe Lisa if you could tell us a little bit about the ways in which you see this concept of metropolitanism influencing environmental history research. Um, I guess that one of the really obvious ways in which metropolitanism has influenced environmental history research outside of Canada has been through uh, William Cronin's book Nature's Metropolis, um, which brought this sort of uh, these set of ideas about the relationships between met- metropolises and their hinterlands um, into uh, a, brought them to a broader audience and sort of helped us to think about how um, these sets of what are essentially power and economic relationships um, 
play into or tie into the state of the land and how the land has changed um, in the ways that it's governed from a particular core um, and the sort of feedback relationships between town and country. So in some respects, it's a more, I don't know, I guess I understand it as being, um, a, well, metropolitanism, that is, as being a, a, a more specific understanding of the relationships between cities and, and their countrysides. And in that regard, I think that um, it has had a, a, a sort of mutually constitutive <laughs> relationship with environmental history research that's so been, it's influenced it and been influenced by it. So. And so even though uh, Nature's Metropolis is ostensibly a history of, an environmental history of Chicago, the idea of metropolitanism goes well beyond just urban environmental history. Jamie, do you find the idea here as influential here in the environmental history literature? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think Lisa's obviously right. Like, it's it's been hugely influential, largely through Cronin, I think, or certainly outside of Canada. Although I do kind of, I mean, when I was thinking about this, uh, it struck me that my impression anyways is that the sort of city-country parts of Cronin have been less influential. The, the, um, the argument that Chicago kind of, um, structured this vast hinterland and that the hinterland then influenced Chicago, it, it seems to me has been less influential than um, the section of the book on commodity flows and thinking about, you know, how those shifted over time as industrial technology was applied to them. So, um, mm. and I mean, I thought about this partly because when I went through the careless articles, I was struck by the extent to which it seems to me that his concern is thinking about, uh, you know, he's responding to the frontier thesis and thinking about the role of the city. Um, and that, to me, it seems is not where is not quite where this has gone in environmental history. Did you find the same thing, Matthew, looking back at Carolus's arguments about the role of cities and it, their relationship with hinterland regions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly some elements of influence coming out of that uh, earlier literature on metropolitanism. Uh, Cronin certainly cites Careless's work amongst other pieces in, mm -hmm. in, in explaining how he came to his particular perspective on Chicago. And there has been, I think, in turn, uh, some influence from that perspective in environmental history coming out of Cronin's work. I mean, Steve Stahl's work on agricultural landscapes in California, or uh, Morse's work on the, the gold rush shows the influence of a, a metropolitan perspective through Cronin's book on Chicago. But if you try and think of other kind of individual city uh, environmental histories that develop that perspective, it's a it's a uh, not easy thing to to come up with a, a long list. And and I think actually the metropolitan perspective has been quite limited in Canadian environmental historiography. Perhaps it's one of those background assumptions structuring work, but it's not one that's been taken up or or critically engaged to any great extent. And I can I can think of a a modest literature that does that, but it's mainly in um, an earlier generation of, of historical geography and, and economic history. I think in many ways, we just look at different kinds of questions in urban environmental history today and in environmental history more generally. So, do you think, to, oh. Lisa, do you think there's room for environmental historians to incorporate these ideas more effectively into their research then? Um, yes, uh, although I was interested, you know, I've um, in going back and rereading Careless, I was interested in how little he 
had how little attention he had given to environment um that it's really about society and economy and politics um and he hadn't even really you know he he hadn't even really taken seriously the distinction between a sort of forest-born or a prairie-born democracy, like the character of the actual hinterland that was being engaged with. Um, I think that the I think that there's more room, certainly, to 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 build on uh, or to to more directly engage with the concept of metropolitanism. I think that the reason that Canadian historians haven't is precisely because, for us, this is a historiography from the 50s or from the 70s in historical geography or even from even earlier and so it it doesn't careless says in one of his articles that you know metropolitanism is kind of putting frontierism on its head um and in that regard it offers new vistas and new perspectives but he said that in 1954 um and in 20 2010 i'm you know can i i don't think that we're we're getting that same new perspective from metropolitanism i do think though that that a more you know I certainly think it would be worthwhile to to for people not to do what Matthew said um or I shouldn't be telling people what to do either way but <laughs> um but I, I think that it would it would be interesting to have people move beyond just using metropolitanism as an assumption um and to actually engaging with its implications for how it has shaped Canada particularly with regards to resource industries because that's where I think some of the more compelling parts of careless's analysis lie mm. so does this get at what Jamie was saying about um Cronin's analysis of Chicago focusing or at least its significance is its focus on industrial technologies and commodity flows? Um, I guess partly that, but also just partly in which so you know so much of Canadian history um is the history of of resource communities at a distance and how those and it's not necessarily just about commodity flows. Like I, I think that is the a lot of the the resonance that Cronin's Nature's Metropolis had, but I think that there's a lot more going on in terms of the role of resources in Canadian environmental history and in Canadian history more broadly, um, and that some of that can be understood by looking at resource communities not just as places that are in place, but also places that have all these connections to other places. So. Well, maybe I can ask Jamie to talk a little bit about how those interconnections between cities and hinterlands influenced uh, uh, his research. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the current research I'm I'm working on is on, um, you know, the, the sort of the marketing of apples, or the basically the movement of apples from Canada to London. So, in the sense that it's drawing on that, um, you know, that idea of those Atlantic connections and sort of the ideas that, that uh, Careless puts forward of, of commerce, um, kind of providing these connections, mm-hmm. that's influenced. But I think it's like I think I think Lisa put it very well. Like it's I think it was Lisa. Anyways, that it's that it's uh, a lot of this stuff is functioning as a as a kind of a, a kind of a background assumptions. Um, I didn't. I didn't really come to that stuff from reading Careless. I came to it uh, from, well, from reading Cronin, I suppose, from reading Harriet Friedman, you mm-hmm. know, on a, the food food history, and um, and probably to reading um, other, you know, sort of historical geographers talking about Innes, in the sense of talking about staples and getting back into some of that stuff. So that's that. I might. 
uh, come closer to careless that way through sort of an interest in Innes and historical, or not even, I was going to say historical geographers, a regional geographer like Trevor Barnes who talks about that. Um, and now I've lost track of the question. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe, maybe I can ask Matthew to pick up on this. Uh, in your own research on the Fraser River, Matthew, did you find that that the Fraser River is an urban river, at least on part of its stem, did this, uh, the influence of the city in Vancouver have, have any role in this history, environmental history of the Fraser River? The Fraser can be characterized as an urban river, and, and it is in many respects in its, in its lower sections as a um, receptacle for sewage and um, uh, as a, a, a source of water power. Um, and as a, a major feature in the morphology morphology of uh, urban development in uh, southwestern British Columbia, but uh, it didn't influence me at all. I would say in how I constructed problems of uh, environmental conflict and changing ideas of salmon and science in the Fraser River. I was much more interested in uh, the history of science, mm. in the history of resource industries, uh, focusing upon water power on the one hand and fisheries that were not uh, uh, simply bound up in the river but also in a complex oceanic environment and then the jurisdictional conflicts which were produced by uh, provincial state and then uh, international conflict over the Fraser River fisheries. So in some ways cities enter into this and mm -hmm. uh, the placement of canneries and so forth, but it's it's by no means the, the dominating influence. And I think that's part of the weakness of the earlier uh, metropolitan scholarship is that it it focused uh, to such a great degree on the city hinterland relationship as central to national history and national historiography that when you go to pursue somewhat more specific questions, whether it's uh, along the path that Lisa was pointing to in various resource-based studies or mm -hmm. um, questions of pollution, say, or other issues that will be of interest to environmental historians, the, uh, the metropolitan frame uh, doesn't, doesn't seem all that robust or useful. It has, it has uh, certainly strong utility in certain limited pursuits, I would say, but uh, as an overall explanatory framework, I think, we, I think we're just in a different era of uh, framing questions and posing answers. Lisa, did you find the same thing in your research on the subarctic region, that environmental history complicates the metropolitan thesis, or the metropolitan thesis can only be uh, used in a limited manner? Um, I guess so. My, my beef with metropolitanism and frontierism both was is pretty effectively expressed by Careless when he refers to the North as a permanent frontier. Um, <laughs> and that just sort of evokes this way in which the North is, and the subarctic as part of the North, obviously, um, is this place far away from what's going on, as opposed to a place where people live, as opposed mm -hmm. to a home, as opposed to the center of the action. It's the, the place that's remote from the action. So I think in that regard, it, metropolitanism in, to the extent that it focuses on, you know, these particular cities in Canadian history, whether it be Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, um, is limited because so much of Canadian history didn't take place in those places. So, um, so in that sense, if, you know, I, I, I would have to say that it didn't, you know, I was sensing more arguing against, against those kinds of ways of understanding what's going on. 
um, than I was embracing them. Now, at the same time, I I, I do think that it's important to not just, because one of the things that I, I find sometimes not necessarily troubling, but just something that I, I, I wish that we could get away from is using metropolitanism simply as a metaphor um, for mm. thinking about the kind of control that a city or a particular place has over a surrounding region and recognizing instead that there is a very um, particular kind of ordered relationship that, that's at work. And I actually think that it's in the history of science in some regards. Like some of my more recent work is has looked at um, the role of um, scientists in the North. And I, I, I do feel like that there's scientific metropolises um, and that they exert a very sort of powerful influence over um, more distant places and that the field laboratories act as hinterlands that then feed back to those metropolises in ways that more sort of directly correspond to what's happening in the north than, than the sort of economic relationships that, are, that metropolitanism was originally used to explain. So. Did you find the same thing in the case of the Fraser, Matthew? Well, it's, it's interesting that uh, Lisa brings up the, the issue of the historiog- historiography of science and um, different kind of spatial ways of organizing the diffusion of knowledge and the pr- production of knowledge. And there's also, um, th- there was certainly an influential body of literature, I think it, it ties back to an article by George Basala on the spread of Western science. It was published in Science, and I can't remember, 1960 or so. But there's been an important critique of that position, too, of the outward flow of ideas in scientific institutions from core to periphery, which, in a kind of more post-colonial vein, points to the range of uh, influences within hinterland locations or, or within peripheral locations between scientists and indigenous forms of knowledge and between scientists from different peripheral regions writing and influencing one another. That was certainly the case in the context of uh, scientific ideas about salmon and the circulation of ideas about how salmon life history develops and is organized. Uh, major centers of ideas on these subjects were to be found in California and Washington and uh, early British Columbia at a few sites, but uh, it wasn't a, a kind of body of knowledge that was diffused out of metropolitan centers of science. It was a, a more complex set of relations. I think what this points to in part, and what Lise is getting to as well, is that um, however stimulating the metropolitan idea, I think um, we have to move away from some of the the basic assumptions about the trajectory of influence, the dominance of a metropolitan core necessarily mm-hmm. being effective in any situation. And maybe it's rather an invitation to think more critically about the spatial relations between different areas between cities and hinterlands, to be sure, but in a range of complex ways. Do we think that maybe the utility of this idea had some historical specificity to it? One of the articles that we read in advance of this discussion was very deliberately limited up to 1914. Do metropolitan relationships between cities and hinterlands change in the 20th century such that we might have to consider global networks of commodity flows uh, more than uh, regional networks within Canada as a nation state if we're studying uh, Canadian environments? Hmm. Shall I pursue yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I mean, I think... Uh, the answer will depend on what period, what you're looking at, what regional context you're looking at. I think certainly there was a focus in an earlier historiography to, to understand um, urban development 
like a, a set of, of connected chains, uh, mm-hmm. an urban hierarchy as it established across Canada, which was perhaps less invested, less interested in thinking about transnational relationships. I mean, uh, it seemed, it's always seemed to me that there's a fascinating study waiting to be written upon the uh, metropolitan influence of Chicago in the Canadian prairies mm-hmm. as, a, as a footnote to Cronin's Nature's Metropolis. Um, so I, I do think that with different concerns, different interests, different vantage points, we might want to explode the national boundaries of an urban analysis influenced by metropolitanism. The other, the other thing is, of course, that uh, we're more attuned to issues of global influence today in terms of issues of migration and urbanization and, and trade. But, um, of course, these relations have a long history themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. think of the classic article by Janet Abelugod on uh, long-distance trade networks in the uh, 13th century. So <laughs> uh, we should perhaps extend that that point of view to a whole range of issues um, and not just worry about a particular period of time. And Jamie, presumably your research on uh, apples touches on this uh, idea of global uh, commodity networks. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and I think, I think in a sense the the global is, is there in the theory from a start to a set. I mean, I, they mm-hmm. would, they called it something else and they were concerned about imperial relations and, and you can still, call it that and, mm-hmm. and I suppose if you're self you know as I'm sort of trying to do self self-consciously looking at trade with London in a in a more global perspective you're sort of forced to think about uh, the various other influences that are coming in um, or the you know the, the, the various global competitors and um, the ways in which other countries inside and outside the Empire perhaps would play into this um, but I wonder but it, it does seem to me that that's <coughs> that is kind of there from mm-hmm. the start. I mean, on, at the, on the other hand, I did, I mean, a lot of what I, my reaction to this is sometimes just like, you know, where did the, the tone or something about it just strike me? And I did, I did sort of find this, this sort of upholding of Toronto and Montreal as kind of the, the uncontested, um, you know, metropolitan cores did, mm-hmm. did strike me as a bit odd. Um, and, you know, we're not, I don't think we're used now to thinking of them in this kind of, um, Sitting, sitting so alone in a sense, you know. Yeah, I think they probably do need to be placed in more complex global, global uh, relations or within more complex global networks. Um, yeah, and I was in, I was intrigued by what Matthew was saying about the connections between different hinterland places, you know, going outside of the uh, outside of the core as well. So, Lisa, I don't know if you want to elaborate on this more, but. Um do you feel that there are other ways that environmental history uh, modifies Careless's ideas from an earlier generation? Yeah, I think that environmental history um, forces us to take seriously um, the different, you know, forces us to take seriously the the way in which the places themselves make a difference. So it doesn't really, Careless sort of makes, em, places emphasis on how it's not just impersonal structures that are at play here, but people and the, you know, and the addition that you get from environmental history is, of course, that it's not just people, but it is the, the circumstances of, of the place. And so, you know, one of the examples from um, my work uh, that would 
that I can think of <laughs> is that, you know, um, metropolitan centers very much wanted to organize the fish trade, the freshwater fish trade, um, but they were, they, their doing so was very much tempered by the fact that a lot of the fish carried a parasite. And so that was, you know, something that it didn't matter what people were doing in some respects, the parasite was still present and they couldn't do anything to get rid of the parasite. Um, and so once you start to, um, once you start to take nature into account, it does start to break down um, or it differently uh, illuminates the power relationships between places that are more distant and the the nodes in networks that might assert control over them, whether it's uh, control through knowledge or control through economic um, forces or, or cultural control or what have you. So environmental history just offers yet another tool to to correct that earlier, um, you know, or to correct or to rethink that that historiography, and one that that. I think it has a more direct connection, obviously, to the to the that earlier historiography, precisely because of the way in which it does think about um, spatial relationships and the interactions between people and the land, sort of in a in a you know in, in terms of how they're arranged. And I, I do think that those things remain um, important questions. And I, I want to actually go back to something that James <laughs> said about. Um, you know, about not giving too much attention to Toronto and Montreal because they both existed within sort of global networks. Um, and I realize I'm kind of derailing things a bit here, but um, I guess for as much as I, I certainly think that there's always this larger global context at play, sometimes it does also really matter who is there on the ground in a particular city. And so I'm just thinking of the, the fact that the, Toronto, the mining industry in Canada was very much focused in Toronto and that that group of people had considerable control over what happened in large swaths of the country um, because they were the ones who, who really shaped sort of mining activity elsewhere. So yes, the mining activity that happened did happen in, in a larger international context, but I'm sometimes um, heartened by the reminder that that you know that, that that sometimes it is sort of small networks of people who exist within cities, for instance, that can you know assert or exert more more power over what happens at a regional or a national level. Is there much to this idea? Uh, in one of the articles, um, Careless emphasizes the psychocultural influence of. Um, I guess, urban dwellers on uh, rural hinterlands, in particular in terms of the exploitation of natural resources. Is there, I guess, from what Lisa's saying about the significance of these groups of mining investors in uh, Toronto, is there some credence to that, that there is a, an urban perspective that's having an influence on environments outside of urban environments? Well, it's a complicated question to unpack. Um, I mean, it, it's it's notable here, perhaps, that uh, Cronin's book ends with a, a somewhat a personal epilogue in which he reflects upon the view out his uh, family's car window as a child leaving uh, urban centers to look at the, the countryside of the Midwest and how an urban perspective on those rural areas was was part of the the automobile experience for him. Um, but there, there are different elements to think about here in terms of uh, urban influence or psychocultural influence uh, uh, in terms of the interpretation of nature, the interpretation of wildlands, what have you. Uh, one is, um, 
we shouldn't think of cities and, and rural areas as simply bounded spaces with different mm-hmm. perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in all periods of rapid urbanization in Canadian history and other national experiences internationally, cities are filled with a lot of people who have lived in rural circumstances for much of their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, people move out of cities into rural areas trying to seek out a different experience, an imagined experience perhaps, or um, maybe not. Uh, but these are all mixed up points of view and uh, relate to one another and influence one another. So there isn't simply a, 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 a bounded experience or perspective upon um, the environment or nature elsewhere. Uh, having said that, there's no doubt that there is also a, a, a metropolitan influence in the experience of communication and the circulation of imagery and ideas. Uh, a very good, precise treatment of that subject is Peter Goheen's work on uh, 19th century communication networks in, in Eastern Canada and the, the, the bias of communication, an idea coming out of uh, uh, Harold Innes's work, of course. But in Goheen's work, he's tracking the influence of commercial information represented in the press and, and through an urban hierarchy. And I think that's uh, uh, an interesting way of getting at the issue of um, spatially uh, cited uh, ideas and their influence uh, over area, over space. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I did, I did kind of want to get at this idea of, because um, again, another one of the things that struck me in, in Careless was was this what seemed like kind of an easy uh, knowledge of what the city was and where it ended and how, and that it was completely different from the country. And this is something that rural historians have sort of have talked about. Um, and tried to, you know, think about the ways in which the cities and countries are connected and the, which, and the ways in which they're uh, separate and different and have separate cultures and things. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it reminded me of, um, for whatever reason, of, of Rusty Bitterman's book on the, uh, and I shouldn't bring this up because I can't pronounce the word properly, um, the Ashiat movement. Did I get that right? Um, <laughs> where he talks a lot about, um, there's, there's a strong sense emerges from that of, the way in which protests over uh, the way land is held in, in um, Prince Edward Island really develops out of this close interconnection between city and country and sort of mm-hmm. ideas about land are kind of coming into the countryside and being worked around at political meetings and then sort of moving back out, you know, through and eventually down to London and then sort of being worked around in that way. And I thought that was one of the things that really struck me about that book. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, I think... Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't have anything particularly definite to say on this, except mm-hmm. for um, I do think that one of the maybe one of the problems with the metropolitan approach is is that sort of stark line between city and country. Um, and it would be interesting. It might be interesting to think about how ideas. Uh, I wonder how much ideas flow back into um, into the city from the country. Mm-hmm. Or the way, or the way in which ideas in the city might be changed by the experience of people dealing with, you know, things going on in mining communities or forestry communities or something like that. Um, well, I certainly see over the 20th century in Canada sharpening of um, identity between rural and urban Canadians in park history, um, between producers in rural areas and consumers in urban areas. Um, 
coming into conflict in wilderness parks in Canada uh, over consumptive uses of nature and uh, non-consumptive recreational uses of, of mm-hmm. uh, wildlife, for instance, or natural resources in parks. So there is certainly, I think, uh, you know, in the early decades of the 20th century, a sharpening of perspectives between uh, urban and rural Canadians. But I, I certainly agree with Matthew's point that, um, uh, you know, these aren't watertight categories between urban and rural, uh, especially when we're talking about people whose uh, lived experiences transgress those boundaries. Well, yeah, and there is a history there. I mean, like a good way, you know, where I am now in North Bay, Ontario, like a good way to get people to not, you know, an excellent way to get people to not listen to you is to tell tell them that the thing you're about to say is developed from your time living in Vancouver or Toronto <laughs> or something like that. That's that's going to guarantee they don't listen to what you're saying. So, you know, but I don't know that those lines were always as sharp. Yeah, yeah, certainly. But I mean, I don't know that those lines were always as sharp as that, you know, because you certainly see... Uh, 19th century places, you know, trying to trying to emulate the larger cities and things. So. Sure, and certainly um, into the early decades of the 20th century, urban Canadians um, performed a number of productive activities that we might consider to be rural activities, from raising animals to uh, raising yeah. food in in urban environments. Sorry, Lisa, yeah. you were about to say something. Well, I, I was just going to also add, though, that um, I do think that the way in which urban people understand space um, and their perception of space um, for as much as that has changed as urban spaces themselves have shifted, um, does influence how they understand spaces outside of cities. And so I don't, you know, I I would certainly agree that we, that overly sort of suggesting that the lines between urban and non-urban people are overly um, tight is, is a problem, but mm-hmm. the flip side of it, I, I do think that, you know, in in Northern Canadian history, a lot of the problems has been the difficulty of people to understand the closeness of communities that spread out over extremely large areas, um, and I think that that is a product of people whose lived experience involves communities that are close because they're spread out over small areas, um, and so, and I, I think that there's, I know that there has been some research done on sort of the, the way in which we perceive space, and it's, it's a difficult, you know, in some ways it's a more difficult question to get at mm-hmm. um, in history, but I, I do think that that's one sort of important way of, in which that whole psychocultural aspect um, of urban life can play a, a bigger role beyond just the question of identity, but in terms of how people actually interact with these environments. And that that brings up something I wanted to ask the group about um, teaching of environmental history. Uh, Three of the four of us teach in large cities. um, And one thing that I try to at least convey to my students is their relationship to places that are quite far from where they live based on what they consume in urban environments. Um, And I think this is something that Cronin and Richard White uh, try to get at in the edited collection Uncommon Ground about the need to... um, raise awareness or consciousness about the interconnections between cities and hinterlands through consumption, what we consume as urban dwellers and what impact that has on environments outside of cities. I don't know if anyone has experienced that in their teaching or has tried to convey that in their teaching at all. Yeah, I was, I was at a, a, a oh, sorry, you want to go ahead, Matthew? Or? No, you go ahead, James. All right. Um, I was at a breakfast at uh, the American Society for Environmental History at a breakfast for, agricultural sort of agro-environmental historians and there was a, there was a lot of talk of, of trying to teach students about 
farming and trying to make them understand where uh, food came from and that you know um, and, you know how this worked, et cetera. And uh, and I actually didn't say this at the time, but I should have. But that that was actually not really not my experience at all. Because where I am, uh, our student body is largely made up of people from small communities who mm-hmm. essentially don't want to go to. It's about the only option in Ontario for people who don't want to go to a large community or something near a large community, and maybe who can't get into Queens. But um, although I think a lot of our students would consider Kingston to be a large community, so they come mm-hmm. here and and they kind of teach me about a lot of these things. So it's it's uh, I've kind of experienced the opposite that you know I teach a lot of people from kind of rural and resource towns, um, and yeah, I don't I don't feel like I need to kind of give them that lesson and I spend quite a bit of time trying to get them to tell me about uh, rural towns. I feel like I'm, I'm from a resource town so I feel like I've got some handle on that. But. And Matthew, what have you found in Vancouver? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the vast majority of my students have spent almost their entire lives in cities. I, I actually quizzed my first year students on this point earlier in the term and it must have been about 80 or 90 percent of the mm-hmm. class that they've grown up in cities. It, it crops up in a range of topics and issues when I'm teaching different courses. I, I teach a fourth-year research seminar, which I focused a couple of years ago on a relatively contemporary dispute over hydroelectric development in northern British Columbia. And mm-hmm. uh, I thought it was a great idea for course. And then in the first day of class, I realized that none of the students had, had visited the Peace River before. And... Um, most of them couldn't point it out on a map. Uh, but as the discussion unfolded, I mean, this is no reflection on them. I think that that's probably true for most British Columbians. But as the discussion unfolded over the course of the term, uh, that became one of the central issues, how their lives in a southern city were bound up in imperceptible ways with a northern river, river through these long-distance transmission networks and through their... Um, casual day-to-day uses of electricity and for a whole range of issues that they have no control over either in, in how their position within a, a, a energy system is structured by uh, technology, by uh, dominant utilities and so forth. So the, the issue of uh, Vancouver's relationship with British Columbia North, with Vancouver and a particular river and their role as urban consumers in a broader field of economic development and environmental change was, I think, a, a striking point for them that developed through their own work and discussion over the course of a term. So I think those issues do come up, and there are ways to facilitate that discussion depending on how you frame problems or research topics for them. Now, Lisa, do uh, issues of energy flows in Edmonton seem prescient for uh, students at the University of Alberta? Yes, although not as much as you might think. <laughs> they do. And really, in a, in a way, the interesting thing about students here is that it sounds, and I've never done a, a survey of them to actually ask, but certainly when, when they speak about their interests and, and where they're from, it always struck me that more of them are from small towns, hmm. um, whether in Alberta or, the, or else in, from other parts of, like, I've got students from northern Ontario, I've got students, a fair number from out east. Mm-hmm. from Nova Scotia um, and I'm always kind of struck by that because they you know that that there isn't more of an urban sensibility in Edmonton um, and I, I think that even for those students who are from Edmonton um, part of that 
reflects the nature of the city itself, which is extremely spread out and not very urban in a lot of respects, um, and speaks to you know the way in which um, you know the the period when a city actually became a city really sort of matters in terms of of the kinds of relationships that that city then establishes to other places. So Edmonton's relationships to other places. Um, really are focused on on sort of resource relationships in a lot of respects. So where people are interested in the energy industry, it's because they've got friends or family who work up in Fort McMurray or, mm. you know, work or work in the industries in town here with the refineries or the machine shops and, and so forth. So um, in that sense, they, you know, they're, they're sort of less urban than, than you might think that they would be, although their sense of disconnect from from place is still as strong as I think, and so that's one of you know that's one of those things that I think is one of those false dichotomies that we draw between urban dwellers and non-urban dwellers. That they're you know urban dwellers are much more divorced from you know the natural environment. I think that that at least here in this part of the world doesn't hold. So, so we've uh, we've talked about urban dwellers are overwhelmingly urban society in Canada certainly, but um, Jamie, you're doing and you're working on an interesting new project on rural wildlands and resource uh, studies. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh well, that is just really we're uh, with uh, Ruth Sandwell and Colin Duncan. I'm uh, co-editing a uh, series at McGill Queen's University Press called Rural Wildland and Resource Studies. So. Um, Essentially, we're looking for manuscripts that deal with things that happen, well, basically things that happen outside of the cities. Which, uh, so the the underlying assumption is that resource communities, rural communities, um, things that are happening around, you know, mining, agriculture, cottaging, fishing, power generation, that these things all have sort of some broad similarities. Um, that makes sense to gather them together in a single publishing series. So uh, this is a new series starting at McGill, Queens, and we're looking for manuscripts, essentially. And we'll uh, try to link listeners to where they can get more information about that project. Uh, I thought this was a great conversation. I want to thank everybody. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you, Lisa. Uh, This was an excellent talk. Thank you. Yeah, good. Good to talk to you. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Networking Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Lisa Piper, Matthew Evenden, James Merton, and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast and leave a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow Nature's Past on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. If you have any ideas for new episodes or you want to send me some feedback, contact me through my website at seancarage.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of Nature's Past.